This episode of Red Start was recorded over Zoom on Wednesday, April 7th. Register for future Red Start sessions at bit.ly slash redstartreg. Welcome, everybody, to our smallest session ever. Um, I'm really happy to see you all. Anyways, I think that this reading is uh, a personal favorite, um, and I hope that you all are liking it as well. Before we start, I'm going to go through a few topics that I think will frame the discussion here. So I'm going to share my screen in the hopes that this works. Can you all see uh, our guy, Kwame Nkrumah, here with a quote? You're good. Thank you. I can't see any of you, so please, this is the time to flip me off um, and get away with it. I mean, you'd always get away with it. I'm a little wimp. Um, cool. All right. <clears throat> There's tons of cool stuff to get into here. Kwame Nkrumah is an interesting person. Um, Nkrumah was born in 1909 on the Gold Coast, then a British colony occupying what is Ghana today. While training as a teacher, he was exposed to the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey and took from it that there could only be global racial harmony when the black races governed themselves. He eventually moved to Pennsylvania to go to university, spending his summers in Harlem and paying his way through by doing odd jobs like dishwashing, not a thing you can do today. While at school, his activism focused around Pan-Africanism, the belief that Africa should be free from European colonialism and united as one country rather than many self-governing regions, he graduated with a degree in economics and sociology. This work, uh, Neocolonialism, is a direct through line of Marxist-Leninist thought, taking the framework laid out by past socialists and expanding it to the context that Nkrumah was living through. Nkrumah was picked to run the Gold Coast's new political party, the United Gold Coast Convention, or UGCC. I'm going to say that because it's shorter. And so returned to the Gold Coast in order to help run it. Um, he submitted plans for the party to build capacity for labor strikes, which upset its more rich liberal establishment like the other five people in this picture. Um, soon after, in 1948, post-war inflation caused public anger at high prices and general unrest in the Gold Coast. Um, in a march to present a petition to the governor to address grievances, there was gunfire from British colonial soldiers, which sparked the 1948 Accra riots, which then spread through the country. Um, Accra is uh, today the capital of Ghana, then I believe the capital of colonial Gold Coast. Um, the government assumed that UGCC was responsible for the unrest, although it had almost nothing to do with it, and arrested the six leaders, including Nkrumah. The other five UGCC leaders also blamed the riots as well as their detention on Nkrumah because of his union organizing, which they did not approve of and did not do. This caused a rift in the UGCC and elevated Nkrumah's popularity among the general populace. He founded the Committee Youth Organization, CYO, as a youth wing for the UGCC. They got a really cool bird logo, good call. Um, it eventually broke away from the more liberal UGCC with the liberatory motto, self-government now. He then formed the Convention People's Party as an official break from the UGCC. The UGCC tried to heal the divide, promising that they would reinstate Nkrumah as secretary of the UGCC if the CPP disbanded. But Nkrumah's supporters wouldn't have it. They persuaded him to refuse the offer and remain at their head. The British then convened a selected commission of middle-class Africans, including all of the big six from the previous photo, this thing, with the exception of Nkrumah, um, 
to draft a new constitution that would give Ghana more self-government, but not full autonomy. Sorry, still not Ghana, still the Gold Coast. That would give the Gold Coast more self-government, but not full autonomy. Nkrumah saw, even before the commission reported that its recommendations would fall short of full dominion status and began to organize a campaign against it. Nkrumah demanded a constituent assembly of Africans to write a constitution themselves without the British. When the governor would not commit to this, Nkrumah called for a general strike to begin on the 8th of January, 1950. The strike quickly led to violence and Nkrumah and other CPP leaders were arrested and major sympathetic news channels were banned by the British colonial authorities. Nkrumah was sentenced to three years in prison, which he served among common criminals in a regular African prison, not like a cushy place for the British aristocrats. Um, his assistant ended up running the CPP in his absence, using notes smuggled out of the prison that Nkrumah himself uh, had written on toilet paper. <laughs> he and many other CPP members uh, then ran for and were elected to government, many from prison. Um, they, went, they ran uh, and won 32 out of the 34 races that they contested. So basically, these guys, despite being in prison, were really, really popular. Nkrumah and his CPP then fought and won the people's hearts and minds by taking power in the colonial government and wielding it as much as possible to improve the material conditions of the broad populace. Modern roads were built. The rail system was modernized and expanded. Modern water and sewer systems were installed in most towns. Construction began on a new harbor. An urgent program to build and expand schools from primary to teacher and trade training had, uh, was begun. From 1951 to 1956, the number of pupils being educated at the colony schools rose from 200,000 to 500,000. Despite the British and more traditional tribal leaders stacking the deck over and over against the CPP, they ended up forcing the British to cede to their demands through a combination of electoral work, mutual aid, and labor organizing. And on the 6th of March in 1957, the Gold Coast achieved its independence with the name Nkrumah himself had chosen, Ghana. That said, and it still has the name today, uh, that said, the British rulers put in the poison pill of giving the new country a structure that devolved power from the federal level to the regional level, a structure that made it much easier for British monopolies to exploit and overpower, something that we uh, read in this week's reading. Despite these issues, as well as Ghana starting off quite poor and underdeveloped, under Nkrumah's leadership, Ghana instated a welfare system, started various community programs, and established schools. There was controversy, um, especially surrounding his act to prohibit, um, quote, securing the election of persons on account of their racial or religious affiliations. But overall, this was a relatively prosperous time for the new country, and his administration was widely popular. In 1961, he went on tour through Eastern Europe, proclaiming solidarity with the Soviet Union and the People's Republic of China, which both existed at the time. Cool. His clothing changed to the Chinese-supplied Mao suit. Um, in 1962, he was awarded the Lenin Peace Prize by the USSR and met with Che Guevara and Mao, among with many other cool world leaders that we like and think are good. Um, I want to stop for a second and enjoy this pic of him like laughing with Zhou Enlai. I really like that. Um, this, Zhou Enlai was premier of the People's Republic of China at the time. Uh, and there's just a bunch of pictures of them laughing all over the internet. I don't quite know why or even what language they were speaking in. Um, Nkrumah pushed socialist values in his life and urged others to do the same in their mission to build a socialist Ghana and a socialist African nation, um, pan-African nations, the entire continent as one country. Here's a quote from his 1967 essay, African Socialism Revisited. We postulate each man to be an end in and himself, not merely a means and we accept the necessity of guaranteeing each man equal opportunities for his development. 
The implications of this for sociopolitical practice have to be worked out scientifically and the necessary social and economic policies pursued with resolution. Any meaningful humanism must begin from egalitarianism and must lead to objectively chosen policies for safeguarding and sustaining egalitarianism, hence socialism, hence also scientific socialism. In February 1966, while Nkrumah was on a state visit to North Vietnam and China, his government was overthrown in a violent coup d'etat led by the national military and police forces. The conspirators rules at a as a military government for three years, Nkrumah did not learn of the coup until he arrived in China weeks later. After the coup, Nkrumah stayed in Beijing for four days, and Premier Zhou Enlai treated him with courtesy. Apparently, they really liked each other. In 1978, the former CIA chief of the Angola task force wrote that, Agents in Ghana maintained intimate contact with the plotters as a coup was hatched. Afterward, inside CIA headquarters, the Ghanaian station was given full, if unofficial, credit for the eventual coup. Later the same year, Seymour Hirsch of the New York Times, citing firsthand intelligence sources, claimed that many CIA operatives in Africa considered the agency's role in the overthrow of Dr. Nkrumah to have been pivotal. Following the coup, Ghana realigned itself internationally, cutting its close ties to Guinea and the Eastern Bloc, accepting a new friendship with the Western Bloc, and, you know, a lot of people will see this coming, but inviting the International Monetary Fund and World Bank to take a lead role in managing the economy. This is a very common pattern. This is how fascist takeovers generally work, in tandem with the international liberal economic order. With this reversal, accentuated by the expulsion of immigrants and a new willingness to negotiate with apartheid South Africa, Ghana lost a good deal of its stature in the eyes of African nationalists across the continent. Nkrumah never returned to Ghana, but he continued to push for his vision of African unity. He lived in exile in Conakry, Guinea. I'm sorry for mispronouncing all of these words. Um, as the guest of President Ahmed Sekou Toure, who made him honorary co-president of the country. Nkrumah read, wrote, corresponded, gardened, and entertained guests. Um, despite retirement from public office, he felt that he was still threatened by Western intelligence agencies with good reason how many people around, uh, considering how many people around him were being assassinated uh, constantly throughout these years. Um, when his cook died mysteriously, he feared that someone would poison him and began hoarding food in his room. He suspected that foreign agents were going through his mail and lived in constant fear of abduction and assassination. In failing health, he flew to Bucharest, Romania for medical treatment in August of 1971. He died of prostate cancer in April 1972 at the age of 62 in Romania. Nkrumah was buried in a tomb in the village of his birth, Nkrofil, in Ghana. While the tomb remains in Nkrofil, this is the picture up here, uh, or sorry, his remains were transferred to a large national memorial tomb and park in Accra, the capital of Ghana, and actually that's the picture um, that you're looking at. In 2000, he was voted African Man of the Millennium by listeners to the BBC World Service, being described by the BBC as a hero of independence and an international symbol of freedom as the leader of the first black African country to shake off the chains of colonial rule. Kind of ironic. Um, according to intelligence documents released by the US State Depart uh, Department of State's official uh, Office of the Historian, uh, quote, Nkrumah was doing more to undermine US government interests than any other black African. It's pretty high praise. Switching gears, I'm going to talk about theory for a sec to lead us into the breakout rooms. <laughs> um, Nkrumah's work was a direct through line of socialist thought, starting with our boy Marx himself. Marx, in his 1847 work, Wage, Labor, and Capital, which we read in Red Start Week One, explains the difference between labor and labor power, one of the elements that explains how basic capitalist social relations work. Basically, if you make something that's worth $100 of value every hour, but your boss only pays you $10 an hour, 
That's $90 an hour of the value you create through your labor being siphoned off, off and hoarded by the capitalist class, um, which only pays you for your labor power, which they've deemed a commodity despite uh, separate from the labor you've done. Lenin, in his 1917 work, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, which we read the past two weeks, explains what happens when those capitalists siphon off huge amounts of value from workers. Um, they form multinational corporations, band together to unite their strength and form a socialized, standardized, and structured set of industries. This consolidation into monopolies gives these corporations massive power over governments and over the populace. It also stretched capitalism's contradictions at the time to the limit. And so began the process of exporting some of those contradictions to colonies controlled by mostly European capitalist superpowers and their monopolies. <clears throat> so by this, I mean these capitalist superpowers and their monopolies um, began exporting some of their hardest, lowest paying and most dangerous work to its colonies, thus lightening the load capitalism creates on the Western, you know, white countries, uh, consuming the goods and keeping the worst labor in the poorer countries, black countries and Southeast Asian countries, where it was easier for these monopolies to ensure their rule over workers by force. This leads us to what we're reading in Nkrumah's 1965 work, Neocolonialism, The Last Stage of Imperialism. In this book, Nkrumah begins to explain a problem set of what happens when imperialist colonial governments begin to really cede control to these multinational corporations. Marx, in Wage, Labor, and Capital, explains that as the prices of commodities fall, the rate of capitalist profit will rise, thus increasing the sheer amount of cash these corporations have, especially relative to the amount of money that workers have. Um, hold on. I lost my space. Yeah, these gigantic amounts of money rise both in objective numbers and in numbers relative to the money controlled by workers and by governments. The mostly European governments that were previously overseeing colonial operations to extract wealth from the global south see their power begin to fade in light of the international conglomerate, which now is so flush with cash that it no longer needs these um, colonial governments to directly oversee these colonies. This frees these former colonies to become, you know, air quotes, liberated independent states. These states, while no longer under, under the direct colonial rule of European or American states, do not have the size or strength to fight with these new superpowered Western corporations. This is important for us as socialists because it is a material condition many governments in the global South have to contend with. And so something to consider when we look at their movements and tactics to see what we'd like to emulate and what we'd like to not. These places um, in the uh, third world are, and extreme disadvantage when faced with the onslaught of Western capital accumulated over the past 300 plus years while the global south was held in subjugation to their whims, sometimes literally as slaves. So I'm gonna let you all go to breakout groups now. I've spoken a ton, um, but this week let's consider the problem set that Nkrumah faced in his struggle for an Africa liberate, uh, liberated from international monopoly capital and for scientific socialism and how that applies to us in DSA. When you've got these supercharged, like supercharged international uh, corporations, how do you fight back? What structures are useful to us and what is merely posturing or feel good organizing? If we actually wanna change things, what are our principal contradictions here and how can we change them? Um, I'll let Sam open up breakout rooms and we can talk about it. Thank you. I will now open up breakout rooms and we'll spend a little over an hour talking through and then we'll come back. And with that, go to your breakout rooms. 
our room just ended on a banger just talking about how the british museum is fucking disgusting like as a as a thing that exists as like a monument to colonialism uh that's a good one thanks for bringing that up Devin. no it's cool that they stole all that shit and then like proudly display it and then <laughs> force people to buy shit back that got stolen <laughs> yup My- yeah isn't it great that we did all this colonialism and we stole everything from all these like incredibly like old and storied cultures this is cool okay <clears throat> so i said this in my breakout group i don't know if you all did it in yours so basically we're changing the format a little bit we are not doing the like roundup shit that we used to do nobody liked it we didn't like it you didn't like it we all agreed no one likes it um so <laughs> what instead is um a little bit of um a i'm gonna give like a a, a short talk and then we're gonna do a Q&A. Um, we were told basically through a bunch of feedback that people wanna know what Red Star thinks about things. Um, they wanna know what the Red Star line is. Um, that doesn't mean that you have to like agree with the Red Star line. Um, it just means you have to understand that we're the smartest people in the room. I'm kidding. Um, but you know, people are asking. And so we're gonna try and do a QA. and um, I will talk for a bit on some sort of thoughts that I had on this reading and um, what lessons we should take from it and like some things that will hopefully frame the next week's reading. <clears throat> and also it's just the elephant in the room in this kind of conversation anyways, but capitalist social relations extract wealth from workers, congealing it together in corporations that then become huge monopolies and eventually multinational conglomerates. Capital spends time and effort balkanizing and splitting up former colonies into tiny little countries with no ability to fight back. In our organizing, we should not be helping them do this. We should be building large, broad democratic structures that can create a dictatorship over capital. And this by its nature will need to be large. Anarchism wants to break us down into tiny local structures that are very democratic, but don't carry power. In the US, we haven't really had to contend with the reality of it, but in Africa and in Latin and South America and in Southeast Asia, they've had to bear the brunt of capital's will. Nkrumah fought for an Africa united. He failed, but we can learn from it. Um, the neocolonial relations of Western capital to places like Africa is as true today as it was when he wrote this in the 60s, now over 50 years ago, uh, as we all correctly did that math earlier. We should begin to consider what structures can answer the problem set that Nkrumah poses in this work. Let's pretend we're socialists in a small, undeveloped country for a second. In order to achieve communism, <clears throat> we will need to raise the material conditions of the people around us. And in order to do that, we need to seize the means of production. But how do we do that when there are hardly any means of production to be seized? For example, we wouldn't be able to make food without agricultural equipment, most of which is produced by Western corporations that only take the dollar as a form of currency. And we don't have that in this tiny uh, undeveloped country that we are all pretending we're a part of right now. So our small undeveloped nation would need to find somebody who can lend us money. The big game in town for decades has been the IMF and the World Bank, um, which Nkrumah gets into more in next week's reading. These people will lend us money, but only if we agree to restructure our country to receive foreign investment, do land reform so that private property exists for multinational corporations to exploit, and essentially renounce any socialist reconstruction. This is the only way out, really the only way to feed themselves for many undeveloped nations, and they end up having to take it. If you're a political party in this scenario, like you're a so okay, so we're a socialist party in this tiny underdeveloped country, and we're trying to get the population to our side you know, we can talk about these abstract issues like abolition of private property, but that doesn't really help. Uh, it doesn't really help our case when the other party, let's say they're neoliberals, promises 
food and jobs by IMF loans and restructuring of the country to suit capitalist investment. So you can see why neocolonial relations are harmful and how they're a self-fulfilling cycle that isn't going to break itself. These small countries will go through IMF restructuring over and over again in order to receive loans from Western corporations and banks so they can try and raise themselves out of poverty. But this restructuring further entrenches the power that Western corporations and banks have over them, which keeps them in poverty. How can this cycle be broken? We need to create some sort of means of getting money to these people, even just loans distributed at wide scale with lower interest rates than the IMF can offer that don't require neoliberal restructuring. Um, loans like that would be huge for lifting undeveloped countries out of poverty and subverting the neoliberal economic order. I think most of you probably see where I'm going with this, but for those that don't, this is what China is doing today. China sees the need to lift the material conditions of the people in underdeveloped countries and also sees how much Western power can be subverted by simply getting undeveloped countries out of the neocolonial economic relations that power the IMF and the World Bank at all. Um, the neocolonial engine that props up much of Western capital is shaking at China's subversion of their extractive power in the third world. And even just last year, the US constructed a new bank specifically to try and go lower than China's interest rates so that we could continue forcing neoliberal government restructuring on the countries we extract wealth from. So, you know, am I saying in this call that you should blanket support China? Not in this call, um, but it's something that we should consider when critiquing them. China has been building up its knowledge of Marxism for generations now. The left in America is more or less brand new. And so most of us, myself included, are just beginning to dig into theory and learn through a historical materialist lens how the world works. Their whole government in China was founded on the principles of dialectical and historical materialism. If we think of socialism as a science, we can see how that means they have a lot of data and research to go off of when deciding how to run things, while we in America are really just barely starting off. Um, we don't even, we're not even able to get past the paywall for most academic journals if we're continuing this metaphor of socialism as a science. I think instead of jumping to conclusions about what China is doing and why we don't like it, we should first stop and learn why China operates the way that it does. They are the senior scientists here, and I want to learn from them. Um, this will be the focus of next week's discussion, how Nkrumah's work and the problems that he postulates is in many ways answered by the structures China has erected to combat the global, global hegemony of neoliberalism. Um, but I've spoken enough now and we'll open things up to a Q&A. So this is new, um, but basically um, stack in if you'd like to ask questions. I am supposed to answer all of them this time and other people will not be stepping in. Um, so let's see how I can do. Yeah, uh, what's Red Star's position on like what we as leftists in the Imperial Corps should do if about all this, if there is anything that we can do? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good question. Like, how is any of this like relevant to us, right? In terms of like learning about like Pan-Africanism and like third worldism in China, like there's definitely a critique of like, you know, what does it matter what our opinions are on the Soviet Union? We're doing labor organizing and electoral organizing in the United States now. Um, and I think that's a great question um, and, and a relevant one. Um, I would say our general take, you know, trying to synthesize what other people have been saying in the caucus is that like, this is really important because if you're a historical materialist, you are trying to take history and learn from it. You're trying to study past movements, what they've done, see their successes, see their failures, and pick the parts that you like and use that and take the parts that you don't and avoid them. And so it's important to understand like 
what's going on in other places and to have a line and to hash out like, hey, do we think, you know, Nkrumah, um, you know, what things did he do well? What things did he not do well? And it actually is even good to come to alignment on that sometimes, even if it's like not that important for us to judge him as a person. It matters when we're like um, deciding our organizational direction. Do we want to do the things that he did? Do we not want to do the things that he did? Do we think democratic centralism is a structure that works out? Some people who, you know, don't think that the USSR or the PRC have been successes are like, well, dumb sense sucks. It like creates these bad outcomes. So we're not going to use it, you know? And so I think it is important to have those conversations and what we think about these countries if we're going to use a historical materialist analysis. Yeah, do you mind defining what third or yeah, third campism is? I know it's popped up on the IC resolution discussion online. Um, and how how do we deal with internal or deciding um when a country has differing like socialist movements within it so just like the united states as like dsa salt whatever you know like how how when there are internal differences within a socialist movement or socialist country do we make an analysis of that country um and and kind of building off that is there a need for an outward and internal position on uh, other um, socialist organizations. So what we may say about like China internally being maybe different than uh, what we would say externally to, you know, a less um, socialist friendly American audience. Yeah, that's a, that's a great set of questions. Yeah, sorry, I should define third campism. I think everyone seems kind of confused by it, um, or a lot of people are anyways. Um, third campus is, um, there's an article written by the former sort of like people who are running the IC um, called like Against Campism, um, which describes the third campus position pretty well. Um, basically third campists are like, we support neither Washington nor um, ex-socialist countries. So the third campus position used to be, we are in favor of neither Washington nor Moscow, um, because they were just like, we are socialists, but we think that the USSR is bad and authoritarian. And so we, as socialists in America, for some reason have a unique analysis. We've decided that these things are bad. We're the only people who know what's going on and everyone else is a dumb loser. Um, the last part I made up. Now, third campism is neither Washington nor Beijing. So basically, I don't support America and I see the problems in it, but also I don't support China. Um, I shouldn't say I, that is the third campus position. They're like, we're creating a third camp, not any of those two camps. Um, whereas like, you know, I think the general mood in Red Star is that like, it's not super important for us to like put out public positions on like this government good, this government bad. But in general, we uh, basically are, are, are taking the position of like, we support actually existing socialism as it exists today. And like, we wanna work with that and learn from it. In terms of like when multiple, you know, movements exist in a single country, that does get complicated. Um, but there are certain, it doesn't really affect us in a huge way. I think that we can critique multiple movements for the things that we like and don't like and take the things that we like and not the things that we don't. Since we're a party or an organization, since we're an organization uh, that holds no power whatsoever, it's not super important, right? If we were in charge of the US government, yeah, it would matter um, what we think about each individual country and the movements inside of it. But since we're not, it's kind of okay. Um, Cardinal is actually moving for, um, we'll be releasing our resolution within the week uh, on internationalism, but we're going to push for DSA to join the um, 
Sao Paulo Forum, which is a forum of uh, socialist parties of the Americas. So this does include um, parties like the Cuban Communist Party. Um, it also includes the parties of Evo Morales, as well as um, uh, Nicolas Maduro. Um, but it also includes, I think, uh, I think it includes two parties from either Bolivia or Venezuela. I think it's Venezuela. It like includes Maduro's party and then like a more communist party. Um, they're both involved. They're both talking. They have different positions on certain things, but there are things that they agree on. And I think that's fine. You know, we don't need to like decide for our organization, like which one is right and which one is wrong. I think we can learn from both. Um, but maybe that's me not knowing enough about the situation. In general, it's just going to be complicated. Um, and we're gonna have to take it on a case by case basis. So, you know, Red Star is going through like a, um, Red Star is going through a restructuring, much like Ghana did after the IMF came in. Uh, Red Star is basically trying to decide basically like what our what our line is on things. We're really like having, you know, trying to find out like what our alignment is and how we feel about um, DSA, um, how we feel our mission is within DSA. Like we're not just an amorphous group of friends who like each other, even though we are a group of friends who like each other in general. Um, but basically, um, we see DSA, um, there's basically this open question of like, can DSA be a workers party? And I think Red Star is aligned on saying, uh, we don't know. Um, but basically, we do think that we're going to treat it as one for the time being. Um, we don't see another um, better option in front of us currently, and that DSA does have potential. Um, America is not in a revolutionary moment right now. We are not about to overthrow the United States government. Anyone who thinks that they that we are about to do that is like a little delusional of, and should probably go outside and like talk to normal people for a second and not just stay on Twitter. Um, but basically, we think the DSA has a great potential is to be an organization of organizers. Um, we see this as like training the people who can become revolutionaries, learning about like what works and what doesn't in talking to people in organizing both ourselves and our communities and our workplaces. Um, and so we're, you know, we see ourselves as like one piece of the puzzle within DSA. We're not here to like, you know, force DSA to be communist. We don't think that that's really like the way to create a mass organization or historically how mass organizations have been created. Um, the idea here really is to create like a strong Marxist like um, center. Um, not that we would be the center of the organization, but just basically a pole within the organization that is pushing it in a socialist, in a Marxist, in a scientific direction. Um, and creating something that is very mass, very open. We want to move DSA away from being an organization that grows when people get mad at the news or get cranky on Twitter, and instead towards an organization that grows when we reach out to our workplaces and our neighborhoods and talk to people about the power that we could hold if we do things together rather than separately. And so, um, you know, that's, I would say, a decent, a, a decent amount of alignment to come out of like one big alignment meeting. Um, we're going to continue refining like what our line is. We don't want to be, um, we just all read this piece called Anatomy of a Microsect, which I think is worth reading. Um, it, it really was great for me. Um, we're like creating like your little purist, Trotskyist or Maoist thing isn't really going to get you anywhere. And just declaring yourself the workers party isn't really going to get you anywhere. Um, so we want to work with the conditions that we're given and we see the potential within DSA and we want to try and grow it as much as we possibly can. We don't see it as a dead end like some other um, like caucuses do. Um, we want to see what we can do with it. So basically the metaphor that was used was just like there's a big math equation of like how to do the revolution. We kind of have to just pick a variable right now for workers party. Do we know if DSA is the right variable? No, but we just have to slot in a variable so we can try solving the equation this way. And if this doesn't work, well, we try something else later. That's why um, socialism is a process um, and socialism as a process is good. Um, 
So with that, I will let everyone go stare at Nick's cats because they're so fucking cute. Thank you all so much for coming. We'll be back in two weeks reading the next bit of Nkrumah. Um, it's in the document, not the entire rest of the document. Um, it just says week two, don't worry. It's not like 60 pages. It's gonna be 30 pages. I'm just still editing it down a tiny bit. Um, but basically it's chapters three, four, um, parts of five, and then 17. Um, I'm gonna see if I can try and edit down a little bit of it to fit 18 in there as well. So just don't start reading it tomorrow, basically. I'm gonna be finishing up, um, but we'll be back in two weeks. Thank you all so much for coming. This was fun. Please register in the chat for next time.